for some of the youth we work with, you know, especially youth who have been through extreme tragedy, um, they just might not be ready for formal meditation. And that's probably one of the most important things to know when you're working, especially with trauma impacted youth, but even just teenagers and youth in general, they just may not be ready for meditation for one reason or another. And that's okay. That's not the only way to promote mindfulness. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, author of the book Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, and my guest this episode is Dr. Sam Himmelstein. Sam is a psychologist, educator, and also author of a number of books that are focused on offering mindfulness-based programs to teens. His forthcoming book is Trauma-Informed Mindfulness with Teens, and even for those of you that aren't working with youth, I thought this would be a very informative and useful interview. This is one of those discussions where I tried to focus directly in on best practices. And Sam talked about a number of principles and techniques that he uses with youth. And I think you'll find these very interesting. I appreciated Sam's honesty, his reflection on the topic, and also the fact that his wisdom is hard earned. So without further ado, I bring you Sam Himmelstein. Sam, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, man. Great to be in your office and um, see your space. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, man. You know, I was really excited for this to be coming out, and it feels like a resource that um, when I'm when I'm meeting different communities of people who are interested in this topic, which you and I are, you know, there's a lot of overlap with what we're up to, um, questions just inevitably come up really around youth mm-hmm. and around teens. Right. And so I often, I'd say I'm like, Sam is doing some amazing work on this and then this book feels like it's just gonna be such a great resource. And one of the things that you, I thought as a way to start, one of the one of the things I, I really heard, I've seen in your work, but also in this book in particular, is this, is this thing, it's kind of like a mission statement of mm-hmm. yours about that the most important thing to you is helping young people and helping them thrive. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like why is that important to you and and um, how did that become kind of like your core mission in your life? For sure, man. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, you know, for me, it kind of just starts with my own story and um, getting in trouble. I was in and out of juvenile hall. I was uh, in group homes in between those stays. I had a lot of my own issues, a lot of um, issues with drugs, a lot of issues with anger and, you know, fighting and things like that. And, um, you know, really, really long story short, I was able, this all happened when I was really young, uh, 12, 13, 14. 14 was the last time I was actually in juvenile hall, which in some sense is a privilege. I was lucky to not kind of mess up high school, you know, because once, you know, in working with a lot of youth, when when high school gets messed up, it can be a really tough road back. Um, And, you know, so anyway, so long story short, I, I was able to turn my life around both with the the kind of unyielding support of my parents, which was huge, you know, and also learning a lot of inner awareness practices at that time in my life. And, you know, fast forward to being a clinical psychologist and going back to school and, you know, basically 
um, turning my life around. I, I was, I found myself working with youth. I was very passionate about it just because of my own experiences and just this ability to help young folks thrive and help them flourish in their life was really important to me. Um, I found that I was working with folks who had a lot of barriers to that. And very early on, I specialized in working with incarcerated youth and working with folks who were struggling with addiction problems and struggling with anger and, and you know, quote-unquote delinquency problems. Um, But really at the core was oftentimes trauma or some form of adverse childhood experience. And so I found myself just being very passionate about working with those, with, with, with the young people that I was working with and wanting and having this passion and this kind of desire to help them thrive. And really what that meant was help them get past these barriers that were put in front of them, sometimes from their own doing, sometimes from the community, sometimes from other layers of oppression, um, just to help them live their lives fully, you know? And so, yeah, so it really just came from me, just my own personal experiences and people who I grew up with. And then it really got galvanized when I started doing my work professionally and clinically, you know, to a whole nother level. Because even though I had been through my own stuff as a kid, it was, you know, and this isn't to invalidate my experience, but just speak to the reality of the youth that I were working with, that I, that I you know, still currently work with, uh, we're going some very just ex- going through some extreme adverse childhood experiences and dealing with, you know, even more than what I was dealing with. So just seeing those barriers there even galvanized my desire to, to help them more. And that's where that just this idea of helping folks get into that space where they could where we could plant that seed to the, where they could go on that path to hopefully one day thrive that that's what i was about that's, that's great yeah well, one of the things I, I loved reading the book is t- honestly teens teens are a mystery to me and youth generally i find the people that i know that work specifically with teens or with youth i have so much respect for them because i find the few times i've done any kind of clinical work with teen, i found it very hard like it was a seems like such a different domain. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk inside of what you're up to about what are mistakes that you see um, people make around teens or even for yourself, like what was learnings mm-hmm. that you needed to have along the way to have you be able to be in that in that mission of serving teens? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is I guess what I would call, what some people, I can't even remember who coined this phrase, but what some folks would call adultism, you know, just like thinking that because you're the adult, you have some extra leverage over them as teenagers. You know, that's not to say that we shouldn't respect, you know, the wisdom that comes from adults, obviously, right? But what I'm speaking to is that most adults think they know something and think that a youth or a teen should listen to them. And um, teens don't necessarily think that, <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. so just be, being able to, to 
kind of cast all of that aside and whatever you learned in grad school about doing, you know, quote unquote therapy, right. Or if you're a teacher or something like that, you know, similar, whatever you learned and you think this is supposed to go this way, it's the ability to just kind of drop down to the human being level with them and, and treat them just kind of with integrity, like a dignified human being. Um, that's probably the most important step that I see missed by a lot of folks. And the, the work is really learning how to balance that with healthy adult adolescent boundaries because, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what most adolescents still want and crave, even if it's subconsciously. They want the healthy boundary, but they also want to be respected. Um, and they oftentimes don't get that. Most of the time, it's the adult that's like, I need to be respected in some way, whether they're, mm. whether they're saying that explicitly or whether they're emitting that vibrationally. That's what's happening most of the time. And just learning how to drop down into your human beingness that's probably the thing that I see missed most of the time, you know? And can you talk about that? Um, it makes so much sense about how that plays out with um, meditation in particular. Because I saw that there's, you gave some great examples of ways that you work, I think, that frame um, of around adultism, w around both in therapy and also in meditation about ways that you don't kind of do a top-down thing with people. Can you talk about any examples about how you apply that? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest piece there is that n not assuming that what you're bringing to the table is what is most needed in that moment from a young person like like there's all these assumptions about like and don't get me wrong you know the, the part that I didn't talk about in my own story or that I glossed over when talking about inner awareness practices is that meditation absolutely transformed my life personally so I feel very strongly about it but that doesn't necessarily mean another teenager is going to be in that mindset to want to accept mindfulness or meditation or some other inner awareness or, or contemplative practice you know at that same with that same passion right so it's presenting it in a way more of in a sense of like here are these opportunities to learn about yourself rather than kind of pointing the finger like this is what I'm bringing I'm the adult you should listen to me kind of getting into that adultism and in in a lot of meditation teachers and I think most of it subconsciously like they're not trying to do this right but a lot of teachers in general, whether you're a therapist teaching meditation or a meditation teacher teaching meditation or just a school teacher teaching mindfulness, um, they get into that trap of adultism where they have this idea of how it should go. People should close their eyes and they should sit in a particular way and they try it out and they get some negative feedback. Maybe a kid laughs or somebody is resistant in some way. And then this tension starts to uh, build and then you're in this power dynamic and that's where the adultism really starts to come out and really it's stepping back from all of that and the, to me really at, at a core it's ego work it's being able to step all out of that whether it's you're an adult and they're a teenager or you're different races or different sexes it's, it comes down to the ego work of being able to step out being able to to name it and understand that it's there so that you can then step out of it and then essentially present 
this practice at you know from more of a parallel kind of same level rather than a top-down perspective and that comes in the forms of many different things right like it may be like I like to call these like meditation logistics, like don't be attached to meditation logistics of closing your eyes, of sitting in a particular way. We're I always say we're not trying to make them monks, you know, we're not trying, it's, our goal isn't for them to get enlightened. That's not this path, at least in the, the secular clinical world, right, of working with trauma-impacted youth. Um, it's just to present them with opportunities to to look inward. So that may come in many different forms, and that may be uh, um, a modified meditation where we're not talking about um, any logistics of closing their eyes. That may be more loose instructions uh, that may be not even a meditation at all it may be just like an informal mindfulness activity that helps build and promote self-awareness you know because for some of the youth we work with you know especially youth who have been through extreme tragedy um, they just might not be ready for formal meditation and that's probably one of the most important things to know when you walk in and you know when you're working especially with trauma impacted youth but even just teenagers and youth in general, they just may not be ready for meditation for one reason or another. And that's okay. That's not the only way to promote mindfulness. Yeah, I, I really appreciate where you and I have a lot of kind of conversation and overlap here around what I hear you call meditation logistics, not yeah. getting hung up on certain things. And there's some great modifications really in the book, mm -hmm. um, which I think are, I'd love to talk to you about. Sure. And I'm wondering if you if we could hold in it for a moment. And sure. I'm wondering... There's so many great examples in the book of ways that I hear you talk about um, meditation or contemplative practice, inner awareness practices, really helping a traumatized youth mm -hmm. and someone where these practices actually really helped, whether it was in a group setting mm -hmm. or in an individual setting. Any stories come to mind for you about folks you've worked with where you thought, wow, this, you know, mindfulness really helped um, this youth? Yeah, um, a lot of stories. Um, you know, there's been a lot of youth who I would say once that relationship was built and they started to trust me and we started engaging in, pra in mindfulness practice, there was like a lot of low-hanging fruit in the sense of like, you know, they're able to manage their stress a little bit better, you know. But a couple of youth in particular um, – you know, really come to mind. Like, I remember there was this one youth I was working with who um, went through some some deep tragedies in in her life, and she uh, she basically she lost her dad, who um, who was an addict and an overdosed. And um, I worked with her for a lot, maybe like eight or nine months, something like that. And uh, after she began to trust me, which was difficult at first, um, you know, we at first it was difficult for her to engage in any type of formal meditation because just, you know, as you talk about in your book too, uh, Dan Siegel's concept of the window of tolerance, you know, it was just like it was difficult for her to stay in that zone where she could just tolerate what was going on inside of her for any sustained period of time. So we started with kind of informal mindfulness techniques, orienting techniques, just to help her like gain proficiency a little bit in, in sitting with herself. And then over time started with, 
with um, you know more formal meditation techniques and that helped her over time just learn to sit with herself anyway so w one of the one of the things that comes to mind is just when she um, when we got the news that her dad passed we um, it was difficult she was in shock she um, it, you know it she actually went out of the window of tolerance and because of that I didn't use a formal meditation in that moment we were in session and I helped her just kind of come back into the window of tolerance through one of those little nifty acronyms that I like to use called an INCRA an inherently non-clinical relational activity and basically what we did is we just essentially listened to music for a little while and as her her head started to kind of bob and weep like this it, it started to bilaterally stimulate her you know and get her just to reg, you know regulate that uh internal nervous system get her back into the window of tolerance and then basically um after that we we're able to process we we're able to use different kind of you know i don't like to call them techniques because they feel like so much more than that in this context right like there are things in our relationship that really just kind of helped her process and make meaning out of this tragedy. Some of it was formal meditation. Some of it was informal meditation. Anyways, I'm going on about it. But long story short, she was really able to help integrate herself in those moments. And although her internal nervous system was doing what it usually does when somebody is, you know, quote unquote, getting traumatized, it was going out of the window of tolerance, she or going below the window of tolerance you know starting to get flat up uh, affect she was starting to dissociate in a sense um, that experience didn't end up traumatizing her more because she had been through a plethora of traumatic experiences before that um, because we were able to make meaning out of it we were able to able to essentially integrate it as you talk about in your book um, uh, through our therapy process so in some sense a lot of the mindfulness helped her stabilize and self-regulate herself on the one hand and then on the other hand and this is what I feel like doesn't get talked about as much in the secular literature is just the insight side of it it's like the ability to use it to gain insight and make meaning out of what was happening you know so that's one thing that's one story that comes to mind that is just like oh, well i'll never forget that person yeah yeah so thanks for sharing that yeah there's so many examples in there i'd love to talk about with you and one one place that grabbed my attention was that acronym that you named um and uh, you know, part of the one of the themes i hear in this conversation so far is you not talking about um are talking about not imposing mm -hmm. teachings on youth, but actually getting really curious about what their practices are, what their resources mm -hmm. are. And this has been a conversation, I think, also um, when we talk about mindfulness at a more international scale, when we're doing cross-cultural work and a conversation I, I will be having on a podcast with someone who's saying, hey, my, my work as someone who was from this country moving in a different country was to actually be curious about the practices and resources that are embedded within this community mm -hmm. as opposed to overlaying or mm -hmm. imposing anything. So I hear it sounds like one of the, your skills is that you get really curious and interested about the, the person or the people that are with you. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just curious about that moment with the music mm -hmm. that you're describing. Like, did you... Was that from a previous conversation that you knew what kind of music she was into or did it just, is that something you suggested? Mm -hmm. And if you could also say that acronym again, I just sure. got really curious about um, you're doing something different there and, yeah. and what are you up to? 
Yeah, so the acronym is INCRA, Inherently Non-Clinical Relational Activity. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a yeah. great acronym. And so um, it, it's really for anybody that works with youth or works with people directly, but uh, especially for the therapists, you know, my, my people as a therapist myself, as a licensed psychologist, this is essentially um, something, an intervention but was not created by Albert Ellis or Sigmund Freud or somebody like that, right? Like it's not created for therapy, because, but it's inherently very, could be very therapeutic, right? So a lot of people actually do this already in their sessions. They just may not have kind of a, a name for it. It's the thing where when people come in and they don't want to talk, if, especially if you work with youth, you play cards with them or you play a game with them or you take a walk or you play basketball. It puts this kind of um, this energy in between you to kind of take the edge off of being in the same space, especially for youth and teens who have a more higher propensity to be resistant to go into therapy, right? So it's like this thing in between us, and essentially what we do is we shift our awareness slightly, and instead of the object of awareness being like we have to talk about something, which can be sometimes intense for teens, and other times just I don't want to, they don't want to do that, you know? It shifts the awareness to this activity we're engaging in, and when we're doing that, we're just essentially sharing the vibrational space together which over time turns into relationship you know and so on the one hand it helps with that on the other hand it helps with um the somatic side of that actually helps with um internal nervous system regulation if somebody is getting triggered so it's kind of like a, a double whammy in that sense mm -hmm. and um <clears throat> i won't go too far into that right now because i know our time is limited i want to answer the other part of your question you know with with that with that client in that moment um as have a lot of my experiences have been it was kind of like it, i don't mean to sound corny when i say this but like it was kind of like I was just this medium and that intervention flowed through me. Like, I swear, that's what happened, you know? Like, I didn't think too much about it. Um, in reflection, I've thought a lot about it. <laughs> and I've had a number of experiences clinically like that where something just kind of happened and then I did something without too much thought and then I, I, I reflected on it for years and was like, wow, that was a powerful intervention. I should like think about doing that with forethought next time. And then I have. And that's where a lot of the stuff from the book comes from. And for me, that's also why this practice is inherently spiritual for me personally, just like being with youth, sitting with youth and sharing space and, and doing clinical work because stuff like that comes up. So anyways, in the moment, it, it was like, you know, I, um, I just remember being with that young person and they were like trying to talk to me and they're, they were cutting their sentences short because they had just got this tragic news. And I realized this person is probably slipping outside the window of tolerance because their cognitive function wasn't working normally. This is usually a very articulate young person, right? So I just remember thinking that and then just kind of being like, man, forget this therapy thing, you know? Like, let's just listen to some music right now. And um, 
So we got the music going. I had a computer in the office, so I was able to look up YouTube and just get some songs up there. And then after a song or two, and at first it wasn't, you know, I had known this person. I had a pre-existing relationship, so I knew, like, at least what genre of music she listened to, right? So I knew that much for sure. I didn't know exactly the song, so I just looked up some stuff. And my main goal was just to get her with the headphones on, just moving ever so slightly. And after a song or two, she was able to get to a point where she would then click on the, you know, on the YouTube, the, the, yeah. ne the next things are coming up. So she clicked on the next song. And after about three or four songs, maybe like 10 or 12 minutes, takes the headphones off and is essentially like, wow, we were, we were just, what I didn't say earlier was the session before she, we got this news, she was trying to get back in touch with her estranged father who mm. was on drugs. And we had just got to the point in our clinical work where it was like, okay, we next session, we will call your grandma, we'll call your family members, we'll figure out how to get that number, right? So fast forward to, to back to this experience, she takes the headphones off and she's like, but we were just talking about getting a number you know and so first thing i noticed she's able to coherently put a sentence together so okay she's coming back into the window of tolerance so anyways that was a little bit you know i talk about that experience in the book for sure but but it, it wasn't like i had that pre uh like i had that intervention all thought out before it was happened i've had that experience since then where i've where i can then reflect on that experience and use that clinically but in that moment and that's why i highlighted in the book it was another one of those moments where i just felt like there was something deeper going through me to help this person and that's what you know and that turned into this great intervention it wasn't the first time i had thought about the idea of the incra but it was one of the um one of the times that it really solidified it as a way to help people regulate their their nervous system mm. in, a, in a way it's it's such a it's a powerful example to me of a trauma sensitive or trauma informed intervention of being willing in that moment to what you when you said like i'm, I'm just gonna i'm gonna do something we're gonna do something different here yeah. outside of the yeah. box uh, it makes me think of um uh, my friends that have teens that say some of the best conversations they're having are really in the car mm -hmm. when they're not facing, right. you know, square shoulder to shoulder. Exactly. And it, it brings me to a, a question I have for you, which is that one of the tensions that I both experience and hear from people when doing workshops on trauma-sensitive mindfulness is this tension between having a checklist or a set of very um, kind of S rigorous best practices mm -hmm. about um, well, what does trauma sensitive practice mean, and how can we actually implement that? And then at the same time, uh, that that it's more of a path, and you you describe it as a spiritual path for you, mm -hmm. where, where when you talk about it, I can see it for you. It's like sitting with youth and being live with them and dynamic and not and listening and not being sure what's going to happen next. There's this tension between you know, knowing what to do and then not knowing what to do and then, and then finding our way mm -hmm. in between. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always want to put that out there and see, um, either how you think about that or, or inside of all that, um, what are the, it sounds like you've developed a real checklist or at least a kind of a box of tools for yourself over mm -hmm. the years. And at some point I would love you to get to unpack what, modifications to meditation or what's been most useful for you. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's kind of what that brought up for me hearing you talk about that story. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, um, 
to me, I, I really think the most important factor, which really is above all in terms of trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed mindfulness, is a constant commitment to my own self-awareness and self-growth. Because I feel like there, there is going to be, there, there's, I don't know if there's ever going to be a time where I fully know everything in terms of what's going to happen with this client and what to do. There's going to be a lot of times where sitting with the unknown is the skill, you know, and being able to be a human being, you know, and, and I might make mistakes and, um, and if I do make a mistake, I can own up to that. That uh, that's that's a, by the way, going back to that earlier part of the conversation, that's a big part of the adultism. If you make a mistake and you're working with a young person, own up to it and apologize. Hmm. One of the best interventions if you work with trauma impact, if you work with youth, you know, just in general, if you make a mistake and you apologize for it, that's a huge intervention. Mm. Youth never get apologized to. Adults don't feel like they owe it to youth to apologize to them, you know? So anyways, sorry about that tributary. No, that's important. <laughs> no, that's really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the you know, I, I, I know I wrote it down in my book, but I don't have the list in front of me right now. But the things that come really come to mind are things we've been talking about already, right? Like in terms of like guidelines for trauma informed practice, right? The best way I like to think of tr the, the term trauma informed or trauma sensitive is like not making things worse. Like you're acknowledging something has happened and whether it's a one-time kind of shock trauma event or ongoing developmental trauma, as with most of the youth that I work with, there's this acknowledgement that that something has happened, something is there, that, you know, and not wanting to make that worse is kind of first and foremost uh, above all of that. Um, and then all of the other guidelines for me really fall under that. It's, it's you know, not trying to be forceful about it, um, understanding concepts like the window of tolerance that, that you talk about really well in your book as well, um, you know, not focusing on meditation logistics as we've already, already talked about. But then also the other things that we've kind of, the undertone of this conversation, at least in my mind, have been talking about, which is the relationship is huge. Like this idea of fostering interpersonal safety. Like how do you actually um, contribute to conditions to make somebody feel safe? You know, that's a huge part of trauma-informed care, which is like this idea that safety needs to happen first and then other things can occur and that comes through especially with teens and youth building authentic relationships and fostering trust and you know also when you especially when you're working with young people who are not the same race as you are not the same sex as you don't identify in the same sexuality as you like also understanding things like intersectionality and things like that where you know all of that to me is in the relationship realm because if I don't understand intersectionality and if I have, you know, if I'm working with a young African-American woman, let's say, and I'm a adult white male and I have my blinders on and my biases are are there and I'm not aware of them or I don't I'm not aware of the potential impact they could have on that relationship, then that young person could just uh, probably look at me as, you know, just another white man just another adult right and so thinking about things like that all 
are in the relational realm for me in the relationship realm not to say that of course everybody has implicit biases you know part of the fact that they're implicit are they're unconscious as we don't know them so the idea is like what i said before do your work have a commitment to your self-awareness you will make mistakes that's okay it's about being able to be humble and to continue to move forward and not get caught in the adultism trap especially when you're working with youth because adults not everybody obviously but a lot of them have a tendency to feel like they're right all the time when they're working with youth you know and that could be a really nasty combination when we talk about some of those layers of oppression and intersectionality when a white adult is working with a youth of color or you know overlay that with the sexes with sexuality all of that right um so anyways for me all of that is in the realm of the relationship and helping people feel safe you know if there's a lack of that what we were just talking about it contributes to a lack of safety if that's there then when i introduce this potentially transformative um uh, practice like mindfulness that person is going to be much less likely to buy into it because they don't feel as safe with me but on the flip side of that I've had so many youth that I've worked with been so open to working to practicing mindfulness I mean I there's so many quotes and stories that I could go to because it, and most people ask me all the time when I do these talks around the country they're like how do you do it Sam like how do you get like gang members who are incarcerated to meditate and I'm always like it's really simple actually you know just treat them like human beings that's what I always say back to them and I get kind of like a oohs and ahs and laughs from the audience but then I unpack that and talk about these things we're talking about which is you know fostering interpersonal safety and building authentic relationships which by the way that doesn't always mean buddy buddy like everybody likes each other it just means very clear trusting boundaries non-manipulative boundaries right it can be buddy buddy and it can be a strong rapport and that can be great but it's not always that but we unpack that that's like the art of building relationships the art of fostering trust the art of um of fostering interpersonal safety to me you know i know i kind of went all over the place with my guidelines of what i do in the book but to me that's really what the base is i'm glad you brought it up because i i that struck me the first time i read through the book of the ways that you you make relationship just front and center inside the work and and i think speak really eloquently and write really eloquently about it and um I mean, one thing I'm hearing you say is that it really comes with time. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually just had this happen at a recent retreat, where, and I'm glad you brought this up around um, the social context of a relationship and how that and that being a part of safety and trust. But there was a, there was a, a woman in the space who was saying we were, we were just getting the group was getting kind of focused and a little bit splitting hairs, and she just really raised that. She said, "Well, it could also be." that we need to build relationship with people over time mm-hmm. and that it's not just a one-off intervention. And right. so I hear you talking about the importance of building safety through relationship. And I'm wondering what you would say to a meditation teacher mm-hmm. who, uh, where time is a little tighter mm-hmm. or they're in, they're in groups mm-hmm. where there, there might not be given you're doing like one-to-one clinical work. Um, how someone who is doing a, a mindfulness based stress reduction eight-week course Mm -hmm. what suggestions would you have for them about again this wheelhouse that you're talking about for you Mm -hmm. around building relationships specifically either with youth or across across that spectrum 
that's the number one question I always get when I talk about building relationships because there's always somebody in the room who doesn't have the luxury of time, which is right. absolutely a luxury. And I do this in groups too, for sure. Yeah. But still, the luxury of time is big, right? So my answer to that is this is not a one-size-fits-all, like what I'm about to say is not always going to work. I just mm -hmm. want to make that clear, right? It's not like some silver bullet intervention. But I think there's a couple of things that can be helpful at times, right? Like I said, I'm, I'm overqualifying it right now but just because I want to be clear. It doesn't, it doesn't like always work, but it can be helpful. It comes in the realm of what I like to call skillful self-disclosure, um, not just like talking about yourself and your story that can be helpful if you're like if you're limited on time if you're in a retreat or something like that or an eight-week course like you were saying where you have a group of folks one of the ways that to build relationship is to talk about yourself and your experience that's one way right uh, you should never talk about stuff that makes you uncomfortable, right? Or that you're not ready to talk about. But when you do that, it does humanize you in a way. Like it talks, it just, sh you share your story and it takes you off of, especially in the meditation world, like it takes you off of like the pedestal. It's so easy for folks to pedestal meditation teachers because even in the secular meditation world, it's still kind of like can be looked at as the spiritual thing in a way, or, or even if not that, just like this person has the skill that I'm trying to get, right? So, so, so doing that is good because it helps you relate. But then also the other side of self, skillful self-disclosure, which is not just like divulging your life history or, you know, difficulties that you've had in your own meditation practice that will help normalize it for other folks, is telling people you really want to help them. I think that's like a really underutilized and undervalued intervention it's like hey i i'm here and of course being genuine about it that's a criteria right but like i'm here because i really want to help you and being able to connect with people around that so those two things like i said it's not always going to work but those are sometimes the things that can help build rapport in the moment and get somebody to be a little bit more receptive to you if they're a little bit more receptive to you uh, they're going to be a little bit more receptive to whatever practice you're you're offering. Like for me, with youth, whether it's in a group or one-on-one um, -on -one or in family work, which I also do, um, you know, and sometimes I don't have the luxury of time because I've like taught meditation in juvenile hall classes where it'll be different kids every week, right? But when I do that, when I normalize myself through skillful self-disclosure and tell them, and they can tell that I'm being genuine, that I want to help them in some way, not, not from this place of like I'm the savior and I want to help you definitely not like that more from a place like like I know you're going through some stuff right now and get down on that level with them and I you know that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is to help you navigate that stuff and I want to do that you know I could be somewhere else you know what I mean um, that type of disclosure can just help open them a little bit more in that moment to again we're not I'm not trying to make them into a monk or something like that just help them get an experience of that inner awareness practice that maybe it's transformational in that moment maybe it's not maybe it just plants a seed for later in life you know but that to me is such an underutilized intervention and when I say intervention I just mean like something you can do something you can say that can help promote the relationship
relationship that could then help promote somebody being more receptive to mindfulness or meditation or something like that. Yeah, the image that comes to mind when I hear you say that is almost like you're putting your hand out mm-hmm. and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm here. Here's the invitation. I am here." Mm-hmm. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that about um, sort of self-revealing your commitment like mm-hmm. what you actually are yeah. caring about with them as yeah. a way to build trust so yeah. that's great i love that example yeah i i get asked a lot about self-disclosure is a super hot topic especially in therapy because a lot of therapists right. get trained don't talk about yourself right. other professions too teachers right especially with youth though because they think they're gonna like you know like manipulate your information which which happens at times but not as much as most people think. And it it often comes back to, at some point, somebody will ask the question of like, well, what if I haven't had the experience they're asking about? What if I'm helping folks with drug problems, but I've never been a drug addict? What if I'm helping folks with incarceration issues or issues of racism or issues of community, et cetera, et cetera, but I haven't been through that, but I really want to help them. And I, I, I always say back to them, well, that's important information. Even though you haven't been through it, it doesn't mean you don't want to help them so you should tell them that and I'll tell people all the time when I I, there's so many people I've worked with where I haven't had the experience that they worked through and they question things like well how could you help me then you've never been through it and that's really a fallacy that you have to go through something to help somebody be you know go through that because even if I've been through an experience it's probably been somewhat different than what they've been through even if on paper we look exactly the same you know and so I tell people like you know the power of just pausing and saying, you know what, man, like I haven't been through that, but I can be genuine right now and say, I really want to help you because I care about you because mm-hmm. we have a relationship that can, like, like I said, it doesn't always work, but it can cut through all of that. Mm-hmm. And even when I say the words, it doesn't always work. I don't, you know, I know I'm using the terms intervention, but the key is it's got to be genuine, right? Right? Like when I say, I really want to help you because we have a relationship, I'm not in my mind thinking, oh, I'm going to say that because that's an intervention that can sometimes work. Like I'm really meaning that. That's the human beingness right there. And when you do that effectively and skillfully, it could cut through all of that. And then all of a sudden the relationship is open and there's so much more you can do. Now this kid, this, this young person I'm working with who may have never been open to something like meditation is open to something like meditation mm, you know yeah so. yeah yeah i wonder if we could circle back for it was maybe five minutes ago you sure. were talking about um you're talking about this aspect of relationship specifically around difference social context you mm-hmm. being if you're a white man working with someone across gender across mm-hmm. race or yeah. and um i just appreciate how you spoke to it in the book it seems like that's been part of your path to be uh, doing your own work there. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering who, uh, if you could talk a bit about your um, consciousness there and, and either who are, who are mentors for mm-hmm. you or be- because this is such a live and ongoing conversation in the community, also depending, of course, on where we're, where we're situated and coming from. Yeah. But, you know, I just wonder if there's folks that you would lift up around this or has that come from your own life experience? Um, how'd, you, how'd you get to where you are? Yeah, it's 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 a combination of all of the above, I think, you know, um, and there's I think there's a lot further to go. I just want to put that out there. Um, I, I hate that term wokeness, but <laughs> I hate it. But, you know, for me, it's like there's way more to do than there has been done. So I feel like I'm always 
you know, that's just kind of my personal take to be real with you as a white, as a white man. Like if I'm working with folks from a different background than me, I'm a student in that world more Mm -hmm. than an expert, obviously. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, it comes from a combination of like, yeah, I grew up with folks from a different background than my own and man, I saw that firsthand, like there is a big difference. So that was a piece of it. And then when it when it came to kind of growing up and going to grad school and things like that, um, I had some really important teachers. And in that world, you know, um, some of it actually in undergrad, I had some really important teachers in that world. And, you know, of course, uh, I definitely want to lift up the work of Joy DeGruy. I mean, that work is huge. Robert Carter, who I referenced in the book, who's been at Columbia, who, who I feel like doesn't get big up, big up enough, but he's done a lot of research on, like, the impact of racism and stuff like that. Um, you know, those readings helped me really conceptualize what I was trying to do already. Um, you know, and, and, yeah, it just like a lot of my own inner work and getting feedback from people in my life, to be honest with you, and my colleagues probably are some of the most impactful people in, in the in my world, you know, who have been able to give me feedback and help me grow constructively and things like that. Um, you know, when I say colleagues, I mean my people of color colleagues and colleagues of different, uh, sexuality, colleagues of different sex, gender, that type of stuff, you know? Um, but, but in terms of like reading lists and just like people that I look towards, it's definitely like Joy DeGruy and Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart. And, um, yeah, just, there's a, there's a bunch out there that I could probably keep going on about, but they really, um, uh, just help me, I don't know, continuously think about this, these things. That's and, great. And just like I said, to me, it's like all of this stuff is in the realm of, Am I going to continuously practice my own self-awareness? To me, like, that is the key. And and also, point my awareness in particular directions, right? Like, inside of myself, I mean, like, thinking about things like this, intersectionality, and and how do I, you know, how do I show up in my oppressor roles? And how can I mitigate that more when I'm working with, with clients to make them more safe, you know what I mean? So that it doesn't get aggravated and make them shut down, which is totally, happens all the time. Things, so it's like thinking about things like that. It's thinking about my, me being an adult and all of the ego that's associated with that. So that commitment to self-awareness to me is number one when it comes to trauma-informed work because that's the base that I can then um, grow from in terms of, pointing my awareness in particular directions so that I don't continuously perpetuate some of these roles without awareness, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your look in there. And I have to say from the few people I know who are doing youth work, that's the one thing that I've found myself very humbled by when they would point out ways that I was making assumptions Mm -hmm. about youth or teens that, Mm -hmm. that I knew and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize it until they pointed it out, Mm -hmm. what they would call more formally like adultism Mm -hmm. and, and what you're calling that. And it really, I didn't realize how much I had been shaped Mm -hmm. over my life to really think that anyone who, you know, isn't over 18 somehow like, that their voice doesn't really count right. or I'm not interested in hearing right. Right. about them. And, and so I just, I've had to work that. I've noticed that, noticed the places I could feel 
a certain underlying superiority uh, and then really had to check myself around it. And I love that you're focusing really on what's the inner work that folks need to do if they're going to be doing work with youth. Yeah. I <clears throat> just real quick, not to go too deep down this tributary, but you know, for that, I, I always reference Thich Nhat Hanh and his practice of deep listening. And I talk about that as a mindfulness practice and how, when you really do that with youth and like for real from a genuine kind of authentic place, um, there's this kind of like, I, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard about like the emotionally corrective experience or the relationally corrective experience. I like to think of that as like a socio-culturally corrective experience. Mm. Like when you really give youth the time of day, like they can feel that because that's the thing. They usually never get the time of day from the adults. People just kind of write them off, you know, even when sometimes when they actually sit there and listen to them or act like they're listening to them, they just kind of write them off. So when you get into that practice of doing that, and this isn't to say that like, you, of course, there's always a power dynamic. You're, you're a person in the world with more power than a young person. But uh, when you do that for those moments, it kind of parallels the energy, the vibrations. And they, that is one of the best interventions. I always like to say like, you know, it's like you're not really doing that much, but you're doing so much, you know, by just letting them have the space and really kind of um, giving them the microphone in a sense. But in really genuinely being interested in what they're what they're saying that that's in and of itself a self-awareness and mindfulness practice. It's very trauma informed because you're giving them you're 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 giving them the floor in a sense. And that's what is one of the, the base level things that creates that interpersonal safety that gets them in that mind space like oh this guy david he's cool like he listens to me you know and then you come back a few days later or next time you see them and you're like yeah this 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 practice has changed my life you want to try it and they're like yeah you know mm -hmm. and then you get something going that's how this work starts at least in my experience mm -hmm. that's great i really appreciate it it's, to me that seems like something you embody um, is that combination of both deep listening, but I also still feel your lines. I can feel that you would also have boundaries at the mm -hmm. same time. Absolutely. And, uh, gosh, that's a really tricky, uh, it is an important tricky. balance, you know, to have both. So. Yeah. The boundaries are just as important because I'm not trying to be like their best friend. Right. You know, they need adults with clear boundaries. A lot of, you know, when we talk about in both of our books, um, a lot of, um, well, not that you don't talk about this, but a lot of what I focus on, I'll just speak for myself, is um, the interpersonal domain of trauma. So not like, uh, you know, um, earthquakes and car crashes and things like that obvious can, obviously can lead to trauma and PTSD. But a lot of the youth I've worked with have been victims of interpersonal trauma, different types of abuse and things like that, right? So a lot of the times, the adults in their lives, there's blurred boundaries. And the blurred boundaries leads the further perpetuation of the manipulation and the trauma and that's why the clear boundaries are good and that's ultimately at least I don't I feel this anecdotally in my experience but at least ultimately what it feels like they want on a subconscious level they may not say it it may not be explicit but they are coming into their own as young people moving into adulthood in this adolescent life stage and you as an adult really are the model for that so when you can model authentic but also solid boundaries you know um 
you know, healthy adult adoles- adolescent boundaries, that is such a huge gift to give somebody, particularly, and it can be very corrective for somebody who has, didn't get that growing up mm. be- because of significant abuses, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, anything else that you'd want, you know, listeners to know either about your work or, um, you know, the kind of visions that you have for um, contemplative practice with teens, John Ford Way going forward, just anything else you want to talk about here? You know, the only thing that comes to mind right now is, um, you know, as we are um, recording this, there is a lot in the mindfulness world press about the phenomenon of like make mindfulness and things like that. I don't know if you've been following that, but, um, you know, I just, I, it, it's interesting because I, I definitely agree with the central thesis of that, which is basically like, you can't just tell somebody to meditate on their breath to get all their problems away. That certainly would not be trauma informed, but I just want to put out there that the work that I'm doing, and I believe the work that you're doing too, with your book it really is, it's not just this isolated kind of like just teach meditation and that's going to solve people's problems, right? It's more, it's much more of a holistic view of working with people and helping them resource themselves and empower themselves to to grow and to not only transform their inner world, but their outer world as well, at least to work towards that, to plant that seed. And for me, really what it means to be trauma informed is to, um, is to acknowledge all of those layers of different institutional and structural forces that impact people and their decision making, both from, you know, the, the internal nervous system that's going haywire and that's why somebody's acting that way to the neighborhood that they grew up in and the harassment they've had uh, from police their whole lives or something like that, you know, which is a lot of the youth that I've worked with have been through that. Um, it's really putting a lens on all of that and helping awareness grow and helping helping folks navigate through their own reality and their world. And that's, again, I'll say it one more time, but like for me, it starts with relationship because it's like we're, we're here together experiencing this rea- reality. And um, from there, there's just so much that can happen. Again, back to that comment, it was like, if you walk in there and you... It's so simple, right? And it's it's kind of corny to say, but it's like if you treat folks like human beings, there's so much you can do. You know, the problem isn't with the statement. The problem is with when everybody laughs at that statement because they know that most adults don't actually treat young people like full-fledged human beings, particularly when it comes to the um, the development of wisdom, right? Wise people are often old people. But for me, especially with adolescence, that's a that's a transitionary life stage. And anytime there's transitions in a life stage, for me, there's always gems of wisdom. So when I, I'm not saying like youth have more life experience than somebody who's an elder, right? But I'm just saying there are gems of wisdom in their experience of their transition, and that should be acknowledged. And when you do that and you treat them like human beings and you explicitly try to connect on a human being level, then you can really uh, walk side by side with them down a a deep path. And sometimes that can be a healing path from trauma. Sometimes it can be just 
helping them transform themselves, their community around them, uh, and much more. So that's that's kind of like what comes to mind in terms of parting thoughts. <laughs> right on. That seems like a, seems like a great note to end on. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk. And your your book's coming out in November. Is that right? That's right. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to everything that's to come. All right, man. Thank you for thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. If you have any comments on this episode or any recommendations of people that you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at the address that's on my website. And you can also share this episode on social media. We always appreciate that. Thanks again for joining us and you'll hear from us again soon.